Good morning, everybody. So my name is Dave Class. I am the student ministry pastor here. Um, and before I begin my message, a couple things. One is uh, tonight actually starts at 6.30, not 6 o'clock. I mean, you could come then, but, uh, you know, there won't be any pizza yet or uh, any games going. Um, uh, and uh, also, we have these little nifty things on the info table. And what this is is basically a prayer card. Um, and we would love it if you would be praying for all of our adult leaders and all of our students who are going to be joining me for two weeks of camp um, starting on the 10th of July. So uh, we're going back to Elevate Camps, which is where we went last year in Northern California. Um, and so one side has the middle school week, the other side has the high school week. It has uh, the dates on there. It has everyone who's going, um, the names minus a few late additions. And if you want those extra names, come, come see me. I'll let you know who that is. Um, and then some prayer requests on the bottom. And um, yeah, we would love it if you just went to the info table on your way out today, grabbed one of these, put it on the fridge, anywhere you might, you know, be remembered uh, to pray for us before and during camp. Um, camp is an amazing time where God gets to do a lot of awesome stuff, but uh, it's a lot of work for the adult leaders. And um, yeah, we really want to see God move again like he usually does. So we would really appreciate that. All right. So we're going to jump into it now. Okay, raise your hand if you, when it comes to movies, TV shows, books, if you like a really awesome big plot twist in a story. So most of us, okay. Because like whether it is a movie, TV show, whatever, anything, I think an awesome plot twist can take a good story, make it a great story. All right, now raise your hand if you like a really big plot twist in real life. Okay, that's what I was thinking. Um, not a lot of hands. So I think that's especially true if that plot twist seems to be kind of a devastating blow. Uh, maybe to us, maybe to even people we know and love. Well, we've been going through the Apostles' Creed in this series to help us as a church to clarify what the Bible itself teaches on the most important topics within the Bible. And this week we are going to be focusing on this part specifically that he suffered, that's he, Jesus, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Sadly, we don't get to spoil the most epic, awesome plot twist in history coming in next week's message. Um, my segment ends with dead and buried. Now, that's okay, because trust me, the story really turns around next week. Um, but... We see our part this morning in the creed as suffering, crucifixion, death, and burial of Jesus. But here's the thing. Due to being uh, 2,000 years ago, we have the amazing benefit to see this entire event completed. We get to see the full story. But for those who were living in the moment 2,000 years ago back then, Jesus' death was a massive, major plot twist. And at the time, it really seemed like a plot twist that truly destroyed virtually all hope in the universe. God died. That was a plot twist that you wouldn't think could even happen. But leading up to Jesus' death, a lot went down. And we're going to start in John 18, 28. If you're going to use blue Bibles under your seats, that's going to be page 1002. Um, and while you're looking that up, 
um, and it starts with Jesus and Pontius Pilate. I'm going to talk a little bit while you're looking that up. Page 1002, John 18, 28. So we don't see a lot of names mentioned in the creed, but we have Pontius Pilate. And why name him in the creed? And I think the main reason was to give it historical backup, to place the event in real time. And we have to remember this creed is written really not that long after Pilate would have been alive. Um, we're talking two generations probably um, after he would have been alive when this creed was put together. And so, and even from our passage this morning, um, or two, yeah, two generations from the passage this morning. And I think that's really cool and to remember that. But they put Pilate's name in there by name to say, okay, this event really happened. Okay, this was in history at this time, in this place, etc. All right, so now we're gonna jump into our passage starting with Jesus and Pilate. This is John 18, starting in verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat Passover. That's because Jews during Passover leading up to it cannot enter a house that has any leaven in it. And uh, yeah, the governor's house would not have cared about keeping leaven in their house. So they needed to stay out there so they could still do Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, if this man were not doing evil, would we not have delivered him over to you? Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Now, what that means is Jesus pretty clearly already talked about dying. It shouldn't have been as big of a plot twist um, because he talked about it quite a bit. Um, but he said he was going to be crucified and Jews didn't crucify, Romans crucified. So that's what that means. And continuing on, this, uh, so Pilate entered the headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. <clears throat> then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Okay, so Pilate is not literally asking Jesus, hey, can you tell me what truth is? He's saying that in a way of like, oh, but who can really say what truth is? Okay, and I think that's a, just a wonderful answer from a politician. Um, because <laughs> if we pretend truth is relative, then basically what I'm saying is I could do whatever I want and never be wrong. It's a very convenient way to live. Um, but this is very prevalent in our world today. I have my truth and you can have your truth. Now, anytime you hear an absurd claim like that, I think one of the best ways to think about it and analyze it is to actually look past the actual argument and instead go deeper into the logic of the statement. So the logic that Pilate is using here is that truth is relative 
and it's relative to the person, to the moment, the times. And that type of logic, you know, let's take it and let's apply it to different arguments. And that's a good way to be able to filter through logic and see if it's good or not. So my truth is a car speeding at 80 miles an hour can no longer hurt me. Let's go into the parking lot and test it out. And you would all say, no, that's insane. Correct, good. Um, now, Pilot might counter that with, well, that's physics. I'm talking about morality. Well, then my truth is, um, we got a big strong guy in the back. He's gonna come out because he's bigger and stronger than you. His truth is he gets to beat you up, kill you, take all your stuff. See how you don't like that either? Like, it doesn't make sense. It just doesn't make sense. So truth and reality are always the same whether or not we disagree with them. That's it. They're always the same. Because I don't believe in truth and reality doesn't change truth and reality. They're always going to stay the same. So why is Pilate doing this and saying this? Because he's a well-educated guy. At that time, you know, Rome had one of the best education systems in the whole world. So he's a really smart guy. Why is he trying to live in a false reality of relative truth? Well, we're going to continue reading to see that answer. So John 18, 38. <clears throat> After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. <clears throat> so do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. And now Barabbas was a robber. And it's also assumed he was a murderer as well. Now, I'm going to take us to Mark's account of the exact same event because I believe Mark goes straight to the heart of Pilate's reasoning. So that's going to be on the screen. Mark 15, starting in verse 12, says, And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. So we see, he says, I find no guilt in him. And what evil has he even done? So we have to notice here, the crowd doesn't make this awesome, compelling argument. They don't go, well, see, the thing is in Jewish law and he did this thing. Like, nope, there's no logic being used here. Instead, they mock and scream louder and louder over and over again, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And it works. That tactic actually works. And that tactic worked because there is a temptation to satisfy the crowd rather than be faithful to the truth. And 2,000 years ago, Pilate had a decision to make. He can stand with Jesus and the truth, or he can satisfy the crowd. And today, we have the exact same decision to make. We can stand with Jesus and the truth, or we can satisfy the crowd. But here's the thing, we, as Christians, we cannot bow down to the pressure of the world, to the pressure of our own sin, or from our own one enemy, Satan. We have to stand with Jesus, who is the embodiment of truth, who is truth itself with a capital T. Now, I think that's a great lesson on what not to do. Don't satisfy the crowd. We're gonna dig deeper into on the things we should be doing. We're gonna look to Jesus for that. And to do that, we're going to go back to Mark 15. So this will be on the screen again, starting in verse 4. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. 
But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. So during this conversation, I think what we're witnessing here is the innocence of Jesus being contrasted with the guilt of humanity. And despite the absence of any fault whatsoever, Jesus endured the mockery and unjust accusations that were being leveled against him. And his silent response during the trial, trial um, demonstrated his commitment to fulfilling the Father's will. And this teaches us the importance of maintaining our obedience to God's plans, even in the face of things like false accusations and extreme injustice. Even if those plot twists in life keep coming, we have to remember, yes, they are plot twists to us. They are not plot twists to God. He sees them coming. And what Jesus is showing us here is that God is still in full control. Even when we're like, wow, I didn't see that curveball. He's still in full control and his plans are still and always good. Jesus endured so much suffering. However, in the end, that saved all of us. So although being in the middle of God's plans can be a very, very difficult time to say the least, Jesus' suffering and death show us that God is always in control and his plans are good. Now, as we see here in this story, that word good is not meant to be in a worldly way. This is not about making sure you're a good little boy and a good little girl so God blesses you with health and wealth. God's plans being good mean that despite our absolute inability in the moment to see how a horrific event that has seemingly sapped us of all of our hope and strength and joy for the moment, that event will somehow still be used by God to make us more like Jesus Christ. That that event will somehow make other people in and around our lives more like Jesus Christ. That somehow God's gonna use that awful event to bring others in and around our lives to salvation in Jesus Christ. That's what his good plans do. He takes the worst things and does the best things with them. So even when it seems just absurdly impossible, like the brutal, suffering, mocking, humiliating death of God on a cross, God used that to save us. So, so far we see Pilate given to the mob. Jesus is taken, um, he's beaten, and he's eventually sent to be crucified. And that's where we're gonna pick back up is on John 19, uh, verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister and Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that's John, the one writing this, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. 
And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. So he says, woman, behold your son, and then to the disciple, behold your mother. I think this is a beautiful, perfect example of Jesus's concern and care and love for his followers, even while he's dying a horrific death, he's still caring actively for those around him. But here's the thing, I think sometimes we forget that he's still actively doing this. Sometimes I think we forget that after conquering death, resurrecting from the grave, ascending into heaven, sending down the Holy Spirit to dwell in believers, that that's not just the end until he comes back, that he's not just sitting up in heaven and waiting. The fact is Jesus is king right now. And he is sitting at the right hand of the throne of God the Father. And he is advocating on our behalf constantly. He is speaking to his Father on our behalf by name. And to me, that is one of the things that brings me the most comfort in life, is knowing that Jesus Christ by name is advocating for me to God the Father. And we should get a lot of comfort from that truth. Let's continue on in John 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all now was finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. So he says, I thirst. I think these words highlight Jesus' physical and spiritual anguish, emphasizing his complete identification with humanity and his willingness to experience every single aspect of our human condition. So there's this uh, Jewish tradition during Passover, which uh, is the celebration of God freeing the Jews from slavery in Egypt. And the tradition is called Dayenu. And it's really kind of like a form of liturgy, but um, you can also sing it as a song as well. But Dayenu is Hebrew for, um, it would have been sufficient, it would have been enough. However, what it really means in the context is that's more than we deserve. And during Passover, um, which I think is awesome to mention, Jesus himself observed every year of his life, including right before he's arrested, uh, the leader of the Seder, which is usually the father of the household that it's being held in, um, will say, if God had not taken us out of Egypt, um, or if God had taken us out of Egypt and not made judgments on the Egyptians, and then everyone in the house says, Dayanu, that would have been enough. If God had made judgments on the Egyptians and not made judgments on their gods, Dayenu. And it goes through every single part of that Exodus story. You know, if um, he split the sea and let us cross on dry land, but didn't swallow up all the soldiers that were coming behind us. So in other words, we got across dry land, but then we're killed by the soldiers. That would have been enough. And it just goes through the whole story. And I think this aspect of what we've been reading today is a great reminder form of Dayenu that we are just so undeserving of God's blessings that each and every part of it needs to be recognized as a massive blessing unto itself. The spiritual, the physical, the emotional, the humanity, all of it. So if Jesus had left heaven to come to earth and not been fully human, that's still more than we deserve. If Jesus had been fully human and fully God, but not suffered, still more than we deserve. If Jesus suffered fully as a human in every way, but not died, that's still more than we deserve. If Jesus had died and was buried, but never resurrected, that's still more than we deserve. And you see how this tradition keeps us grounded in gratitude to God. And I love that. 
And every time I read these passages where we see his, his suffering and humanity and death kind of like back to back to back, it reminds me of that Dianu tradition that that act alone would have been more than I deserved. And that one would have been more. But God just keeps going. And we're going to keep going in uh, John 19.30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So this is it. This is the actual death of God, the ultimate plot twist up to that point. And like I said, next week, that message gets to contain the biggest plot twist in history. But in our statement from this morning, it actually doesn't end with his death. We see that it also includes and was buried. And why is that? I think it is to emphasize again the fact that, yes, he is 100% God, but he, was, he is also 100% human. And at this moment, also, like a human does, died and is fully dead. This isn't him passing out, being mistaken for dead. He died. He was buried as a dead man. His life is finished. Jesus Christ, the one and only son of God, has died on a cross, hanged next to criminals. And why? Because Jesus chose to glorify the Father. Jesus knew the only way we could ever be reconciled to a perfect holy God was for a perfect sacrifice to take our place, to take on all of sin for all time. So we can go before the one and only perfect holy God as people forgiven for every sinful act, thought, and word. The apostle Paul beautifully expresses this truth in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, which will be on the screen. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The redemptive power of Jesus' death, it, what's crazy is that it actually extends far beyond the forgiveness of our sins because through his sacrifice, Jesus himself triumphed over sin and death. And on that cross, Jesus conquered the power that was holding humanity captive and he offers us freedom and brand new life. Jesus' death and resurrection opened the way for us to be reconciled with God the Father, to be born again as adopted children of God, and to experience the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And the victory of the cross gives us the hope in the face of despair. It gives us joy in the midst of sorrow and the assurance of eternal life in Christ. And understanding the redemptive power of the cross I think it calls us to respond to that. We are invited to acknowledge our brokenness. We're invited to confess our sins, to place our faith in Jesus Christ alone, the redeemer who paid the price for our salvation. And through our repentance and through our surrender to him, we receive that gift of forgiveness and the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And in response to God's redemptive love, we are called to go and live transformed lives. Jesus always said, go and sin no more. We need to go reflecting his grace, mercy, and his love to a world desperately in need of that redemption. The redemptive power of the cross is the heart of our faith. And through Jesus' sacrificial death, we do find that forgiveness and that restoration and that hope of eternal life. So because of that, we can never forget the depth of God's love that he displayed on the cross, a love that reaches out to everyone who's broken and offers redemption to anyone 
who believes. And that is all due to the fact that Jesus glorified the Father instead of being like Pilate and satisfying the crowd. So on that note, I wanna say what we believe as a unified body, but that's the creed. And if you don't believe those things, that's fine. You don't have to say it with us. But if that's true for you, I would love to talk to you. Um, after I'm done speaking and praying, I'm gonna be back by the double doors back there. Um, if you have not put your faith and trust in Jesus, I would love for you to come and talk to me about that. Um, so let's all stand together and we're going to read the creed together. There we go, all right. <clears throat> I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the grave. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Universal Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right, let's pray. God, you know more than anyone. Um, Hebrews makes it clear. We pray to a God who uh, not only understands everything we went through, lived it all, and conquered it all. You can sympathize with us fully. God, life can be brutal, um, brutally difficult at times. We see it in this. You suffered under Pontius Pilate. You died in excruciating death, a word excruciating that had to be created to describe the pain on the cross. And yet all of that, all of that was used to save human, humankind. I mean, we see that you are in control. We see that even the worst thing, the death and murder of God was used for the best thing, the salvation of mankind. Um, God, let us never forget that. In the depths of our sorrows, in the worst of times, when we're in that spiritual desert wandering, that you are still sovereign, fully in control. And when we live close to you and seek after you, not only do we have the truth, but we also will, it will also be used to bring us closer to you, make us more like your son, Jesus. Other people in our lives, the ripple effect from that will become more like your son or even come to salvation for the first time in your son. Let us never, ever forget that. And God, please use each other, use everyone in here, our church family, our brothers and sisters in Christ to remind us of this fact when we're going through it, to not just sit there with us and mourn with us and have joy with us, but to remind us of the beautiful fact that you are always in control and you are perfectly good and all of your plans are perfectly good. We love you, Lord. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna... Uh